0: Welcome to the Bookstalk Podcast from Lincoln City Libraries. This program was recorded at the Lunch at the Library program at the Bennett Martin Public Library on April 3rd, 2019. Library Director Pat Leach discusses a selection of books from the American Library Association's 2018 Notable Books List. I am Pat Leach and I am planning to talk to you today about Notable Books. And you do have two lists in front of you from which I will be choosing books. And I have a couple things to say about that. One is that the white list is the one that I will be talking about today. But as a bonus, I've included the green list, which is the more recent list. The way the timing of these lists work is that in early 2018, the American Library Association announced the notable book list for 2018, which primarily is books published in 2017. So then the green list that you have that says 2019 Notable Books List was announced earlier this year, and it's books that were primarily published in 2018. Each year, a committee of the American Library Association works throughout the year to seek nominations and then to evaluate nominations, resulting in this list of 12 fiction, 12 nonfiction, and 2 poetry. And I will admit from the start that I have not been addressing the poetry books as a general practice. So if that's what you're here to hear about, I want to apologize now to say uh, I hope that you'll enjoy the fiction and nonfiction books that I will be discussing today. Some of you have heard me talk about this process before. And so you know that the way this all started was that in about 1990, when I was the supervisor of the South Branch Library, And somewhat new to my job, a woman came in the library, who I got to know pretty well later, and she said, you know, at Westminster, which as you know is across the parking lot, at Westminster we have a group called Book Lovers, and we used to have a person who came in every year, and she would talk about the notable books list, and we are looking for somebody who would do that now. Would you do that? And I'd never even looked at the list, and I said, yeah, sure. So then I saw this list of 26 books and kind of wondered what I'd gotten into, but that first year I primarily read a few of them that seemed generally interesting, and I've made a practice of doing this since about 1990, which is a lot of years of reading notable books. To step back a little bit to say what's on this list, these are books that are Considered notable. So that might mean that it's fiction that is especially well written. It means that it meets a high standard. It means that the nonfiction may be new information written for lay people. It could be that they are especially well written or bring forward interesting and important information. But it doesn't say that they are generally appealing to a wide audience of readers. So even though these are notable and even though every year I find them very enjoyable and I learn about books I wouldn't have heard otherwise, when I do a presentation like this, I typically look at that list of 26 books and say, which of these have the most general appeal? And I combine that with which of these have also the uh, advantage that I wouldn't have known about the book had it not been on the list. So every year I get some really great ideas off of this list of books that I wouldn't have heard about otherwise. And I feel like in my business, I typically hear about books. Not all the time, but sometimes there are sleepers on this list that I'm so pleased that the list was able to highlight and bring forward. What I will do is talk first about a couple of fiction books, and then I'll talk about some nonfiction books. And I will try to save enough time that at the end, if you have questions about some of the other books that I didn't choose to talk about today, we'll have some time for some conversation. I would mention that each year when this list comes out, it's sort of a reading holiday. I kind of declare it a national holiday at my house uh, when the list is announced, because then I can see what books I'll be reading in the year ahead. But I don't necessarily have time to absolutely read all of all of them. So what I say is that I have read all of most of them, And I have read most of some of them, but I have read some of all of them, so that I can kind of give you a sense for each one. And I would also just note that I read these on my own time. So if I find that a book isn't working for me, I do set it aside. And I feel like part of my professional responsibility is that I do give it a second try always, and for the most part, that second try takes. So uh, that's a little bit about uh, how, I, how I work through these. Now, the first one I want to talk about is called The Last Ballad by Wiley Cash. It's third on the fiction list, on that 2018 list. And I don't know that this book got a lot of attention. I don't know how many of you would raise your hand if I said how many of you have read this book. It's not a lot. Uh, this is a book that's set in the late 20s in South Carolina and actually Wiley Cash based this book on the life of an actual woman whose name was Ella May Wiggins and he describes in an afterword what is known about her so I want to just read this so I get this correct she was a poor white woman born in 1900 married at 16 with five of her nine children still alive in 1929 her husband had abandoned her She worked in the textile mills earning $9 a week and those were 72 hour weeks. She lived in a neighborhood that was mostly black and in the summer of 1929 she joined the National Textile Workers Union which was a labor organization of the American Communist Party. She, an uneducated person, became a spokesperson for the people who toiled in the cotton mills and she joined a delegation to Washington, D.C. to talk with senators about their situation. She also wrote and performed protest songs that were later performed by Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger. It's clear from the start, and he makes clear from the start, that she died in a strike-related incident in 1929 and her children were placed in orphanages. Cash wrote this story partly because he grew up in the town in which all of this happened, and he had never heard of her. So he decided to write this novel about her. So this story is told by a third-person narrator who mostly follows Ella May, but also pulls in other people as the story progresses. And I would say that those shifting narratives sort of build up a sense of momentum. We know bad things are going to happen, and so through those narrators we get a sense for the movement toward the culmination of all of that. One really potent aspect of her story is that because she lived in a black neighborhood and because black people also worked in the mills, she wanted to organize black people as well as white people. And that was not necessarily seen as advantageous to the union. And so she advocated for that despite the fact that really the power and the money was against the union in the first place and the power and the money was also against that kind of racial integration at that place and time so it it became pretty intense. Now in interviews I found it interesting that Wally Cash mentioned that he's been interested in justice as a topic, justice and injustice, partly because of his work with African-American writer Ernest Gaines who wrote one of my favorite books, A Lesson Before Dying, I'm always interested in the way that authors connect with each other. Now, in this book, he doesn't romanticize her. Uh, She was a human like anybody. Uh, She faced down a lot of her own uh, lack of confidence and preparation for what she was doing. Now, I will say that I I do have an issue with this book. And my issue is that when I read historical nonfiction, I find it works best if the author takes a place and time and an event, and probably creates a fictional character to get into that soupy mix to sort of write out the novel. When the main character is an actual historical figure, as a reader, I'm forever saying, did that really happen? Did she really say that? Is that the actual event? Now, truly, I should probably give up my obsession with that because it's, it is a novel, clearly. But I tend to think that the best historical novels are those that take a very authentic place, time, setting, and then fictionalize who's in that mix. And he didn't do that here. I still am bringing it to your attention because I found it a really impactful book. And I also think that this is generally appealing because the South as a setting is really compelling. That era of the start of the Great Depression is really compelling. And the other thing that I think he does really well here, uh, I would say it's a perfect book group book because he asks those big questions like, am I brave enough to confront injustice? Will my family love me if I break out of their mold? How do I protect my children? And how much can I risk my own livelihood and comfort to insist that change happens? So it's a pretty intense book, and it's very well written. What I didn't mention is that in certain places... Wiley Cash is great at simply describing the unfolding of events. He does a great job with the southern landscape and with describing the setting. So again, The Last Ballad by Wiley Cash. Uh, The next book I want to talk about, the uh, second of my two fiction books, is Solar Bones by Mike McCormick. Have any of you read this one? Okay, see there again, that's what's so great about this list as we find out about great books that we hadn't heard about otherwise. Now, Solar Bones, I had to give two chances. Because the first time I tried to read Solar Bones, I found myself uh, stuck somewhere without a book with me. So I had to download a book quickly to my phone. And I downloaded this one because it was available at the time. And then as I began to read it, I realized that this book is written all in one sentence. And that's really hard to read on a phone. It's not as hard to read in a book. And I will admit that I I get a little irritated with books that are written in unconventional ways unless there is a really clear and compelling reason why a person would do so. And I am indicating to you, because I'm talking about this book, that he won me over. So, uh, despite the fact it's all one sentence. This book is told in The Voice, and it's the story of a man named Marcus Conway. And he follow he tells a story, and he follows something that I would call stream of consciousness, kind of going from story to story, idea to idea, kind of like a wide-ranging conversation. As the story opens, Marcus Conway is uh, looking out his kitchen window. He lives in Ireland. He's an Irish person. He hears the chimes of the church, so he knows what time it is, the afternoons ahead of him. And he's kind of got this sense of unease. His wife is gone, his son is gone, his daughter is gone. So the afternoon is sort of spinning ahead of him. And for some reason, that makes him a little bit anxious. So really, he just spends the afternoon in thought. And I ended up finding that really interesting, in that his life was really quite ordinary. He was like a, he was a civil engineer. He has a wife and children. <laughs> He uh, looks back on his upbringing uh, with a father who was adept with tools and tractors and that kind of thing, but his ability to think deeply about his life makes it seem like much more than just an ordinary life, and one of the scenes that he includes in this book has to do with his dad who could fix anything and he describes how his dad with only a spanner, which is an Irish term for a wrench, takes apart his whole tractor. And so Marcus, as as a boy, walks into this shed and pretty much his dad has in order all of the pieces that he has one by one removed from the tractor, in order, and then he puts it all back together because he's that kind of orderly kind of man. But what I found really interesting was that for Marcus Conway, that was a source of some, I'm going to use the word unease again, realizing the world can be taken apart. And so what you think of as this whole thing, a tractor, can be taken apart. There are some excellent scenes in this book. His daughter is an artist, and he and his wife go to her opening, and as he's looking at these big paintings on the wall, he realizes that one of the media used in that is her own blood. And as a father, that really impacts him, and he has to leave for a while he also reflects on some of the jobs that he did. And I love that about this book, is that it talked about him as an engineer. And there was an incident that was pretty impactful to him where a school that was being built that he inspected did not have the underlying concrete poured correctly. So he had to stop the job and have it be redone despite the fact that they were under huge time pressure. So again, just an ordinary life of this man looking back on this ordinary life. The aspect of it that becomes more and more, that the author makes more and more apparent, even though Marcus Conway seems not aware of it, is there seems to be a presence of death there. And as the book moves farther and farther along, you begin to think that maybe there is more going on here than you originally realized when you started the book. Now, this book has gotten quite a bit of acclaim. It won the Goldsmiths Prize. Uh, which is uh, described this way. It's awarded to a book that is deemed generally novel and which embodies the spirit of invention that characterizes the genre at its best. So I started off by complaining a little bit about it being written on one sentence. I think it really works in the way that it earned that award and the way that the story builds in certain ways. And even though at the start I said it seems like stream of consciousness, when you step back from it and realize the impact that it has, you realize that maybe it seems like stream of consciousness, but Mike McCormick crafted it to feel that way and be that way, even though its impact shows a lot more structure. Now, at the end of a book, I will often go back and say, why is it called Solar Bones? And in this case, and I think I have the selection marked, uh, as he's reflecting on his life, he's sort of thinking about the structure of things. And he has a conversation with his son um, online, and then he begins to reflect on sort of the rhythms of our lives. And so he he says, all those human rhythms that bind us together and draw the world into a community, those daily rites, rhythms and rituals, upholding the world like solar bones. That's the, the source of that title. I've been recommending this to quite a few people. Again, um, I feel like it's a great book group book, although you will have to get your book group members over the hump of only one sentence, written a little bit uncharacteristically, um, but it, again, it refers back to all those big questions that make for great book group discussions. If yes, you, if you listen to the book, Ooh. would it work? I think it would work if you listened to it, because I think that a reader would pause in the right places. And even though I said all one sentence, it's not all one paragraph. So it has white space from time to time where the paragraphs start and end. Had it not had those, I would have had to not read it, probably. Now I want to turn to the nonfiction, and the first one I want to talk about is... The second, on the, the second title on the second page called The Best We Could Do, an Illustrated mem- Memoir by Thuy Bui. And this is a story of a woman whose family came to the United States as Vietnamese refugees in the 70s. And it's written in graphic novel format. So this is what it looks like. And the book begins, and she is inspired to write this book because she becomes a mother. And that leads her to think about her own mother and her relationship to her mother, and what her mother did essentially to get their family here. It was both her mother and father who came, but she sees her mother as the one who really made it happen. So, in this book, she tells the story of her seeking the information about her family. So, it's not really chronological because she tells the. It's it's chronological in the sense of what she learned in order of when she learned it, but it may be that she learned a lot about her mother's childhood, you know, two-thirds of the way through her book. But she tells about how her parents came to be together. She talks about what was happening in Vietnam that made them have to leave. And then she talks about what their life is like in the United States. It's really impactful. It's a challenge for those of us who are word people, because you have to look at the visuals and you miss a lot of the story if you do not. So you have to pay attention to that. Her story really is compelling, also in the writing of this book, because she decided she wanted to tell this story in graphic novel format, but she was not a cartoonist or an artist. So she had to learn how to draw in order to make this happen. So it was probably a 15 or 20 year project. As it turns out, they ended up in California Her mother became the primary breadwinner. Her dad suffered from depression quite terribly in the United States. Her parents ended up divorcing, but now they're really good friends, so there's an interesting dynamic of how that story goes along. One of the things that really stuck with me in this book is how she, in talking with her mother, asked her mother, well, what would you say your happiest time was through all of this? And her mother says, well, probably the time I was in college, you know, before the war, before all of that, when I felt optimistic. And T. Bowie talks about how as a daughter she felt so bad about that because she had thought it would be becoming a mother. That would be what would be what her mother described as her greatest happiness. So there's also a sense in here of a daughter learning about her mom. I got to hear T. Bowie speak last summer, and she said something at the end of her presentation that... I will never forget, she said that she reads a lot of Holocaust memoirs. And she said what she believes is true for Holocaust memoirs or for the children of Holocaust survivors as well as someone like herself, is she was saying that as you grow up in that situation, you know that you will never be as brave as your parents. That your story will not have the kind of courage that their story is. And she said the other part is that almost nobody knows the hidden cost of that courage to a family and to the person who survived and i kind of remember when she said that i'm just thinking i want to sit here for 10 minutes and just sort of take that in this book is not a pessimistic book it's a very hopeful book again i think um, i guess i'm going to say that about all of my books today, they're great book group choices because all of these kind of combine that sense of everyday everyday relationship between a daughter and a mother. But then those really big issues about uh, how do you protect children? How do you decide it's time to leave your homeland? All those big questions are right here in The Best We Could Do. The next one I want to talk about is The Woman Who Smashed Codes. Its subtitle is A True Story of Love, Spies, and the Unlikely Heroine Who Outwitted America's Enemies by Jason Fagoni. Have any of you read this one? One in the back. (laughs) So uh, this is one of those historical nonfiction sort of social history books that happened because a man, in this case Jason Fagoni, a researcher, was going after one question and found a whole lot of information about another one. So in this case, Jason Pagoni was interested in um, Edward Snowden. And that led him to do some uh, work on the National Security Agency, which led to William Friedman, who was one of the most um, well-known cryptographers of that organization. And in doing that research, then he came across all these papers from a woman named Elizabeth Friedman. And she left a a large body of papers and work that he came across. And what he realized is that Elizabeth Friedman was sort of one of those unsung cryptographers from the World War II period and earlier. And so he decides that he wants to tell her story as well. And it's a really interesting story because it sort of starts at the turn of the 20th century. And Elizabeth, I believe, is set to be an English teacher, but she's not sure that's what she wants to do. So she does what people should do, which is she visited a library. In this case, the Newberry Library in Chicago. And the librarian there was aware that a gentleman um, named George Fabin, a wealthy man, uh, had sort of set up this compound in rural Illinois where he had people studying things. So he had a woman named Mrs. Gallup who was studying whether Shakespeare's plays were actually written by Francis Bacon with messages encoded into them. He had a, uh, He had a man... William Friedman, who was studying entomology and also helping Mrs. Gallup with this research. So the librarian said, you know, George Fabin might be somebody you'd want to work for. He's just, you know, got people working out there, and um, a place called Riverbank. So she went there, and um, she worked with Mrs. Gallup. She met William Friedman, who became her husband, and it really was this kind of I wouldn't say disorganized, but it was this amalgam of different things that George Fabian was interested in. So he would hire people to study things. And then when World War I started and the country realized that they didn't have enough people to decode messages, sort of a call went out saying, we need cryptographers. Well, George Fabian didn't know a whole lot about that, but he thought he had people who were working on something similar who could become cryptographers. So then Elizabeth and William Friedman went off on this journey of being cryptographers. And in her case, um, her husband went into the military to do some of this work, but she did not have that option. So she did cryptography on behalf of, say, the Treasury Department and the Coast Guard during the 30s and during Prohibition rum running. Uh, She was somebody who would do that kind of work. And then as World War II then began to pick up, her work changed over to Uh, Looking at messages that were coming from Germany, especially in regard to South America, so interesting story of an unsung hero, very well written. You kind of have a sense of the history and the time. One of the main tasks for somebody who writes a book like this is telling the story and keeping the story strong, even when they have to weave in quite a bit of information. And Jason Fagoni does that really well here. In many ways, I consider a book like this sort of a sideways tour into history. So. I don't think I'm all that much less educated than the average person, but when I read a book like this, I think I know nothing. And so this is a great way to get some of that information. I was also especially interested that uh, Elizabeth Friedman pretty much made a library, an organized library of her papers, that as a cryptographer, she had an organized way of thinking about things, and so she left her papers very well organized. I have a little, I think I marked a little excerpt about that in that, um, this is what Pogoni says about it, they became librarians. It's no accident that J. Edgar Hoover got his start in government as an 18-year-old Library of Congress clerk, a job that gave him, in quotes, an excellent foundation for my work in the FBI, where it has been necessary to collate information and evidence. And uh, he goes on to say, Elizabeth's 30 bound volumes of rum messages were a library of the outlaw sees. She ended up doing uh, work with um, the German messages that, Enigma? Enigma, Enigma machines. So she solved several Enigma machine messages and then one of the aspects of the book I found interesting is that the government had to be very careful about what they did with that information because um, they didn't want to reveal to the Germans that their Enigma machine or their particular one had been compromised and often those were done in different keys and so even though the information would be used it had to be done very carefully or the cryptographers would have to like start all over because the messages were decrypted in a, in a new way there's a whole lot in this book about her about the time I didn't have time to tell you a whole lot about the fact that she was also a wife and mother and that this story came out really long after she had done the work that she did. And what I think is interesting is I think a lot of similar stories are coming out now, as many of these women who worked in this area are um, dying often, and their families are finding out after they're gone that they did this kind of work. And of course, it was not to be spoken about, and she did not speak about it. Then the next one I want to talk about is Hunger by Roxane Gay, subtitled The Memoir of My Body. Have any of you read this one? Okay, a couple, one or two. I chose to talk about this one partly because Roxane Gay has Nebraska connections. She uh, grew up partly in Omaha, and part of her education was done at UNL. And actually, she was here in Lincoln speaking in October about um, about her work generally. I... I'm not even sure where to begin to talk about this book. So I'm going sort of to the end of of my notes that I had made about this to say that, again, often as I finish a book, I'll step back from it and uh, I think about the title, but I also try to draft a one-sentence summary, which is harder than it sounds for some books. And so in this one, I said, somehow it seems right to have two summaries of this book. One, a good girl who is 12 is gang raped, tells no one, and gains a lot of weight in order to put distance between herself and the world. Or a second one is a remarkably smart and articulate woman who knows a lot about being female, being black, and being physically very large, tells how she sees the world and the world sees her, and how those things have contributed to her successful writing career. You know, taken alone, neither of those really works, but together they come close to describing this book, um, Hunger by Roxane Gay. So uh, Roxane, as a young girl, Um, was gang-raped by her boyfriend and some of his friends. And toward the start of the book, this is the full chapter 5, what you need to know is that my life is split in two, cleaved not so neatly. There is the before and the after, before I gained weight, after I gained weight, before I was raped, after I was raped. So she sets up the book that way. But it would be wrong to imply that that's all that this book is about because Roxane Gay is often on TV doing commentating on popular culture. Uh, She's somebody who has developed quite a personality. She has an online presence that is very large. She thinks about things in a variety of ways. So in this book, of course, she's addressing her own size and how she came to be as big as she is. She also talks quite a bit about just what it's like to be in the world and be as big as she is. So, So for instance, she notes that Sometimes people will arrange for her to be on a panel. And when she looks at the stage, there are steps, but there is no railing. Uh, There are chairs that have arms that are not going to be big enough for her. Um, There are chairs that are simply not engineered for someone of her heft. And so she talks some about just what it's like to be that big. What I found compelling, especially about hunger, is that I think we're accustomed to memoirs where somebody says this bad thing happened to me, here's how it affected me, and then here's how I went beyond it and prevailed. In her case, it would mean, and here's how I lost all that weight. In this book, she still, uh, she's, she expresses, I think, the tension of her situation. So with this book, she's thinking about maybe having bariatric surgery. She's not sure she wants to have it. She thinks a lot about what role does hunger play in her, in her world and in her life, but she doesn't, answer she doesn't tie up all those loose ends basically she says this is what has happened to me and here's what it's like to be me but she's not implying that she solved a lot of a lot of issues in her life however it is so clear as i said before that she is so smart she is so articulate and in many ways of course she has succeeded because of the way that she's able to think and speak and write and when i saw her at the university in the fall, there are two, two main things I remember. One is that there was a long question-answer and answer session, and there are quite a few young African-American women there who are aspiring to be writers who asked her questions about that process. And honestly, she's somebody of whom you can say she thinks in paragraphs. So she would get a question, and her answer just came out so fully formed, You know, beginning, middle, and kind of tied up at the end. I was so impressed by her ability to do that, taking questions. One of the questions that was asked is, do you find writing to be kind of a catharsis? And she said, well, I never write for catharsis, but I find that often in writing, I resolve the issues that are in my mind. It's just that that's not my intention when I set out. Not an easy book to read necessarily, but certainly a book that as I read it, I felt like I was in the presence of a genius. So that one is Hunger by Roxanne Gay. Then I just have to note that last year's One Book, One Lincoln selection is on the list, which is Killers of the Flower Moon. How many of you have read this book? Okay, now see, that just warms my heart. I kind of want to do that again. How many of you have (laughs) read this book? (laughs) And the point of One Book, One Lincoln is to, to bring forward a few books of note that a lot of people will read, and through reading, have a common experience. And so, As the one book, one Lincoln work goes forward every year, I'm often intrigued to see how many of those books end up on the list. And then I'm always intrigued to know how people respond then to those titles. And this is the one that was voted the winner from the three nominees from last year. So for those of you who aren't familiar with Killers of the Flower Moon, it is a nonfiction social history set in northeastern Oklahoma in the late 20s when the Osage Indians Uh, Many individuals became very wealthy because they owned the mineral rights under their property. Oil was discovered, and they became millionaires very quickly. The flip side of it is that many of them were murdered uh, to get the rights to those properties, which could only be given through inheritance, not by being bought or sold. And so there were several murders that went un, unresolved largely and so David Grant goes back to say here's the whole story there and to do his own research about what had happened during that time. I found it a, a very compelling story and I think it's one where I reminded myself as I read it you know it's easy to read a book like this and say oh at that time people had no idea what justice was supposed to look like and it's like then I think okay in 80 years what books are going to be set in 2019? of similar events that we don't know about right now but that are happening under you know under and behind the scenes um similar to the story of killers of the flower moon i want to mention that this book was on the list and i'll just also mention that i know what the three nominees for this year are but i can't tell you yet so i'm hoping book lovers that you will remember that on the morning of monday which is memorial day Uh, There's an annual event on the dock of the Haymarket Mill where the three nominees for one book, one Lincoln for 2019 will be announced and that will be your uh, starting point to participate in that program again this summer to read the three nominees and then you'll have an opportunity to vote on the winner. I have five minutes left and I would be happy to do a couple things in those five minutes. One is if there is anything on this list where you would like to ask about a book that I didn't mention, I'd be glad to talk about any of the other ones. And then I would just also note that also at your table is the green list that just came out in January of 2019, and I've read a few of those books too, so if you happen to have questions about any of those, I'd be glad to talk about them sort of off the cuff. Yeah, Kim? If you go back and look at, you said you started kind of reading off this list in 1990, Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you would go back and look at all those books, has there been a change in the kind of books that end up on this list? Are they were they in 1990 as um, multicultural as they are now? Would they have had a black lesbian mm-hmm. author on that book then? You know, I would say that there have that the group of authors has been diverse from the start. And what I and I haven't really thought of that from the point of view of sexual orientation. I need to go back and look. But there have been The fiction often has fairly unusual format or situations i refer to sometimes what i call the loretta leach seal of approval and loretta leach is my mom and she wants books that are that don't have really intense violence or intense sexual activity but books that are well written and have a lot to talk about so that would be the loretta leach seal of approval and there are often books that don't meet, that don't get her seal because of language or violence or just violent behavior. The dog so, dies and she won't read it. Is that to me? kind of depends on how the dog, on how the dog dies. <laughs> but um, anyway, uh, a lot of the books have some pretty, in, have fairly intense parts. What I would say um, you see the course of in that time is the rise of creative nonfiction. So a lot more narrative nonfiction, a lot more nonfiction that combines the story of the author seeking the information with the um, information itself. So I think that's one area that's a lot that's different now compared to before. And I would also say that my almost 30 years of reading through the books on this list took me from being primarily a fiction reader to being half and half fiction and nonfiction. I've developed a whole new respect for nonfiction. I probably prefer narrative nonfiction, but I book it all over a science book that just takes a lot of concentration and thought. What I usually do is I get up really early on weekends for my best reading, so I usually get up at 5 on Saturday and Sunday to read, and especially if it is a book, science more than any others, where I need a fresh brain, that's a good time for me to read while my brain is fresh and while I can still think about it. Yes, Jody. I don't know if he can answer it without giving it away or not. (laughs) But I was wondering the blood of Emmett Till. Oh, the blood of Emmett Till, yeah. It talked about drawing on new information, and I didn't know if that's current enough that it Mm -hmm. includes his accuser's recantation. So, the blood of Emmett Till on the 2018 list, he did extensive interviews with the woman who was at that roadside store. And so, and he does, and he starts, it's very early in the book where she says that what she uh, testified in court was not necessarily true. And uh, so the new information really is his extensive conversations with her. Her name is Carolyn Bryant. And uh, she had not been, she had not given interviews or talked to people very much since, um, since the lynching of Emmett Till and since... Um, and after the two white men who were accused were originally let off, but Timothy Tyson had written another book, and I'm, I don't recall now exactly what it was about. She had read his book, and she thought that he would be somebody she would be willing to talk to. So he did quite a few interviews with her. So that's the new information is is from his conversations with her. Yes. What about in Berlin oh. through interviews. Are those real interviews, or is this made up? Uh, They're made up. Primarily made up, but there are a few that I think are actual people. So Here in Berlin is on the fiction list by Christina Garcia, and um, it is a lot of people who live in Berlin, many of them that connect to World War II. It's really a well-written book. It's an intriguing book. If you love characters, you probably like it. Uh, What I recall of, of... What didn't work in that book for me, frankly, was that she has all these characters, and I thought, well, why didn't you write a story about them? You know, so it's like individual, 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 individual. It's easy to sit down and just read one or two at a time, but I kind of thought, okay, now that you've got all these people, why don't you do something with them all together? So that that would be an example of one that might be written in a less than um, conventional way. Anything else? Any other questions? Any books that I didn't talk about where you really want to give a shout out for a particular book and you think, Pat didn't mention it, but you really should know more about Less by Andrew Sean Greer. And Less really is a good book, and I don't know why I didn't talk about it today. The truth is that when I do these talks, I look at the list and I choose six or seven of the books that I think are most generally appealing or that, for whatever reason, I'm feeling a strong sense of affection for on that day. And Less by Andrew Sean Greer is a book that really grew on me as I read it, and I'm not sure why I didn't choose to speak about it today. I believe it won the Pulitzer Prize for fiction last year. I have to say, I started it. And you didn't go anywhere with it? I couldn't. <laughs> well, Les by Andrew Sean Greer is sort of a romp of a book, and it's one where uh, it's about it's about a character whose last name is Les, um, where he is... He seems totally incompetent, frankly, at the start of the book, and he's running away from his life, then I think the book kind of takes a turn in the middle, and he he begins to resolve some of those issues, and you kind of just have to go with it, because he does kind of silly stuff or irresponsible stuff, but also really funny. There are some of the best scenes, some of the best scenes ever in a book, I think, in less, Um, but if what you want is a more structured... Uh, sort of book. Less is probably not the one for you. All right, well I would like to end by saying that I encourage everybody to start a practice such as reading the Notables list every year. I realize you don't all want to read 26 books from a list every year so I will suggest that maybe instead you just choose the Pulitzer Prize for nonfiction every year or maybe choose the Newbery winner for the best children's book of the year but I absolutely encourage you to choose a practice like this and just do it year after year and I think as a reader, you will find that that practice really builds year after year and really enriches your experience of being a reader. So uh, it's up to you which of those prizes you want to go for. You, and I, you, know, you would get extra points with me if you choose something totally out of your usual groove. So if you're a mystery reader, you know, choose science fiction. If you're all about fiction, choose a nonfiction, especially a science one, I would say. Um, but do choose something like this. At the end of the day, what we're all about the library is thinking about our reading community. And so a gathering like this is all about building up the reading community. As you use a library, you're building up the reading community. And especially as you have all those conversations that readers have about the books that they're reading and have read, I sense that many of you are in book groups That kind of thing builds up the reading community. One Book, One Lincoln, it's all about the reading community. And I don't know if Diane will have a chance to talk a little bit about the Heritage Room of Nebraska Authors, which is on the third floor of this building, supported through private funds that are held by the Foundation for Lincoln City Libraries. The Heritage Room of Nebraska Authors absolutely supports a special part of our reading community, and that is books by and about Nebraska authors and promoting the heritage of Nebraska authors in particular as another way that we support the reading community. So I want you to give a little bit of thought to what you're going to be doing to be part of our reading community, and I appreciate that you came here today to hear from me. So thank you all.